1: welcome
0: to the paradigm shift. 4ZZZ is the station you are on, 102.1 FM, or on the internet, as you may be listening to it. My name's Andy, and I'll be with you for the next hour. Um, Last week on the show, we did a bit of a road trip to Tasmania. Um, This week, we're going further afield, although I did it remotely. Um, But we are going to be talking about Kurdistan. Of course, it's been a long struggle for freedom, for Kurds, um, uh, ethnicity divided between different nation states, and we're going to hear from a couple of different people about what's going on over there. First off, we will hear from Rebecca Dowling, who is a very good friend of mine, and it's very exciting to have her on the show. She's currently in Iraqi Kurdistan she works as a human rights worker for Christian Peacemaker Teams. And we'll hear all about uh, what's been happening in Iraqi Kurdistan, some inspiring stories of struggle there. And then after that, we will hear from Fionn Skiotis, who is part of a group in Melbourne that's just formed Northeast Syria Solidarity, um, who are trying to support the Kurdish people in Syria, What was previously known as Rojava and who have had plenty of struggles but who are committed to democracy, gender equality and ecology and that's pretty inspiring too so that is what's coming up Um, hopefully it will be educational for us all because we don't hear much about Kurdistan in the media and there's all kinds of issues uh, one being that Groups like the PKK who advocate for Kurdish independence are considered a a terrorist group and so journalists uh, report on what they do at their peril. But stay tuned in and by the end of it we will be better acquainted with the Kurdish struggle and Kurdish music. Let's start off with uh, hearing from Beck. Can you start off by introducing yourself?
2: Hello, my name's Rebecca. Um, I'm working in Iraqi Kurdistan with Christian
0: Peacemaker Teams. So before we get on to um, what Christian Peacemaker Teams does, a lot of people probably have heard of Kurdistan but maybe don't know much about the Iraqi part of Kurdistan and its kind of status of semi-autonomy and things like that. So do you want to start by giving us a bit of a brief background about... Iraqi Kurdistan and how it came to be?
2: Uh, sure. Um, it will have to be very brief, but after World War I, Kurdistan was split up by France and England and split into um, Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria, and um, the Kurdish people in those current became persecuted minorities, and um, in all of them, they started armed struggles against uh, the ruling powers there. And so in Iraq, um, this armed struggle continued through the 60s and um, Saddam began the Antfel campaign when he was in power, which was a genocide against the Kurdish people in Iraq. Um, And this continued through to the 90s um, with the chemical bombing in Halabja, where um, most of the population was killed. And the mass exodus of Kurdish people trying to get to Iran where a lot of people died in the mountains in the mud and rain. And so the world began noticing what was happening and a no-fly zone was imposed in 1991 over the Kurdish area and Saddam could no longer control it and it became semi-autonomous. And this power was kind of cemented in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq when Saddam was overthrown and um, since then... Iraqi Kurdistan has um, achieved quite a level of autonomy from the rest of Iraq, although technically um, still under the power of the central government.
0: So, then the organization that you're working for, Christian Peacemaker Teams, was also in Iraq around the time of the Iraq War, um, one of a number of kind of peacemaking organizations that made their way there amid the a kind of carnage of that war how did they end up in iraqi kurdistan as a permanent presence
2: um so cbt had decided to move out of baghdad and then they were invited up to kurdistan by some um activists living up here cbt never goes into areas unless they're invited there by local people and um so they ended up moving up there this year is the 15th year we've been in Kurdistan. Uh,
0: But there's other CPT groups in other countries around the world, conflict areas?
2: Yeah, so CPT was started by the Mennonite Church and kind of came out of the US. And their mission was um, to go to areas of conflict and non-violently resist war and oppression. with this idea, they came from a pacifist tradition. So this idea that um, if they truly believed in the nonviolent message of the Bible, they should be willing to risk their lives to um, protect people nonviolently. And over the years, that mission's changed. And so now um, our mission statement is uh, building partnerships to confront violence and oppression, transform it, and um, we have groups in Lesbos, in Greece, uh, in Palestine, in Colombia, in Iraqi Kurdistan, and uh, also a presence on the border of the US and Mexico, helping migrants there, and in Canada, working with First Nations people.
0: So in Iraqi Kurdistan, what uh, projects does CPT work on to try to make a more uh, peaceful and just society there?
2: Our main projects are working on the cross-border bombings, so uh, for the past 35 years, uh, the border areas of Iraqi Kurdistan have been bombed by Turkey and Iran, and we work with the village communities there, farmers and pastoralists, Mm -hmm. who are impacted by those bombings and very little notice is taken of. They're killed, their livelihoods are lost, their farms are burnt, they're displaced regularly, And so uh, part of our work is amplifying their stories and trying to tell people here and internationally what's happening, as well as um, working with other organizations to provide support for them and um, documenting what's happening.
0: And there's an ongoing civil war in Turkey between uh, Kurds and the Turkish government.
2: Yeah, so like I said before, the Kurdish people in all those countries um, have been mounting an armed struggle against the oppression they've received and in um, Turkey that groups of PKK and um, which is now a registered terrorist organization and they um, believed in a unified Kurdistan and don't recognize these artificial borders put in place um, originally by the UK and France and um, travel regularly across the mountains and so they exist in Iraqi Kurdistan as well And that's kind of the reason Turkey gives for bombing these areas is the presence of the PKK. And um, there's a similar group in Iran, and so Iran uses the same excuse. But um, they show very little regard for the fact that there are a lot of civilians living in these areas that have lived there for thousands of years and don't want any part in this war.
0: So as well as the border bombings, there's other projects that you're involved in there?
2: Yeah, so we work closely with the civil society here as well, um, supporting civil activists and independent journalists who are both documenting those border bombings and um, corruption within the government here. Uh, this year we've been focusing on the case of 81 Badanan prisoners um, who were journalists and activists from the Badanan region um, of Iraqi Kurdistan and were imprisoned last year in um, a series of arrests that was really a crackdown of freedom of expression here by the um, local government. So a few of them we had known um, where from where their work intersected with the cross-border bombings and they were documenting what is happening there and um, protesting the presence of Turkish bases and in 2019 there was a number of arrests to do with um, people protesting the presence of Turkish bases and the deaths of five civilians in Deraluk. And then um, last year, in 2020, a number of those same people were arrested again, along with some others, and um, they were accused of being a threat to national security and on spying on the Kurdish government, passing information on to the German, uh, US, uh, UK, and French consulates. And um, there was a lot of uh, uproar here in the media and also um, with the public very upset about these trials and aware that these accusations were baseless and um, the people were being accused because they had been critical of the government and um, the government was wanting to silence them. And so in February, they had their trial and were sentenced to six years in prison, five of them. And that was kind of the beginning of these uh, series of trials of those 81 prisoners that we began following. And so we attended this year 16 of those trials documenting what was happening and um, passing on information to their families as well as consulates, trying to put pressure on the government to release them. And a number of them have since been released.
3: The
0: Shift, and that song you just heard was Fahad Bandesh with "You Can't Kill Me." Um, of course, Kurdistan seems a long way away, but there are a number of Kurds in Australia. People who have come as refugees over the years. One of them being Fahad Bandesh, who spent a long time in Manus Island and then in detention in Australia, but he's now out and free to play music. Um, Before that, we have been talking about Iraqi Kurdistan and with Rebecca Dowling, and we got up to talking about the Badnan Prisoners, a group of 81 journalists and activists who were arbitrarily imprisoned by the Iraqi Kurdish government. Uh, Let's go back to hearing a bit more about that. So these activists and journalists locked up they didn't have contact with their families and then um, there was a, a Kafkaesque kind of court process?
2: Yeah, that's right. So the arrests themselves were illegal. They were often arrested um, from their homes in the middle of the night by people who had no identification that they were in police um, were wearing masks and had guns and would handcuff them, put bags over their heads and carry them off. And their families would have no idea where they were um, or who had taken them. And that's kind of the point where we would be contacted and we would work with the families and lawyers to try and locate them in prisons. And then um, once that had happened, try and advocate for their release and also for them to have access to their families or to lawyers, um, some of them were able to see their families, but most of them didn't have any contact apart from um, a few phone calls here and there. And um, all the ones, all the trials I attended, the prisoners hadn't seen a lawyer until the first trial, where um, they would arrive in court. And this volunteer group of lawyers who had got together to represent them would say, do you want us to represent you? And um, in front of us all, they would have to say yes or no. And um, we also heard from a number of them that they were being threatened, that they shouldn't um, have legal representation and that they might be released if they didn't. Um, However, most of them chose to take on um, these volunteer lawyers who then represented um, the people in all the cases we attended. However, there were some people as well who were convicted in secret trials, so didn't even have access to that volunteer group, and no-one knew their trial was happening uh, until afterwards, where maybe a family member would get a phone call with them and they would say, oh, no, I've already I've already had my trial. It was held in a secret court and I've been sentenced to seven years in prison. So we were... Um, advocating for these rights as well to be met alongside UNAMI and um, some of the consulates here.
0: So it sounds like a pretty terrible situation for civil society in Iraqi Kurdistan, although some of them have subsequently been released?
2: Yeah, and that... um Well, we can't really know all the reasons, but we believe it's because of the pressure uh, being put on the government here. Like I said before, it's been all over the media, these cases, and there's been a lot of protests, and um, now a lot of um, foreign governments involved, especially after they were accused through the um, prisoners being accused of espionage and spying for them. And um, so... how many, there was 27 released last week and um, there was a trial where five of them were released and also another trial where one of them was released but um, a number of the released still contain convictions because they've been in prison for over a year so they would be convicted with um, the charges of threat to national security or similar charges but then be given time served and released Uh, Which is still an issue because those convictions mean they can't be employed in their original jobs often, and um, it's it's on their record, and they also uh, are there's some distancing from people they knew previously who don't want to get caught up in the similar situation. I mean, it's a it's proof that the government here really has absolute control over these things even though they've come forward and set, made statements about not um, wanting to get involved in the court process and how they can't overturn the decision, um, it's been very obvious that they've they've previously, before the court even began, decided what sentences they were going to give out. And um, like a number of family members said to us, these courts are just a theatre. There would be evidence presented by the uh, Security Council and then Um, the lawyers for the defence wouldn't be able to pursue it properly they wouldn't be able to ask questions they tried to present evidence in the defence and um, it would be dismissed and the primary accusations would be um, these witness statements of witnesses who were never brought into court, were never cross examined and um, while the prisoners denied all the accusations and their own confessions were read out and then um, by the judge in court confess beginning with I am a criminal I've done this I've done this I organized this assassin I'd planned this assassination um, I wanted to overthrow the government and then the prisoners would get up and say that's not my statement I'm not a criminal um, either I, d- I didn't sign that at all or I was forced to sign that and I never got to read it
0: well, For people of Iraqi Kurdistan, there's border bombings on one side and a repressive government on the other. Are there other issues facing people living there?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, we've got a lot of issues with climate change now as well. Um, There's been a big drought this year and um, there's a lot of talk about how Iraq is going to be one of the most severely affected countries with climate change. Um, a lot of the water that comes through Kurdistan and then flows further down into Iraq comes from Turkey and Iran, and they're building dams that cut off that water flow, which is a real issue, um, both for drinking water and the farming that many people, subsistence farming that many people rely on. Um, as well as general pollution, oil wells being built and blocking farmers off from access to their land. Um, The war with ISIS, which is still affecting parts of um, Kurdistan, um, continued conflict between the Kurdish regional government and the central government over wages and these disputed land areas that are rich in oil. Um, And then also the... Uh, another big concern is the withdrawal of the U.S., which is meant to be happening at the end of this year and what that will mean um, for areas like Kurdistan, which are surrounded by countries like Iran and Turkey and then um, groups like ISIS and the Hasht- and Hashdashabi in Iraq as well. And um, what that could mean if there was not the U.S. support here.
0: Mm. Well, there's certainly some issues there. but You've lived in Iraqi Kurdistan now on and off for a few years, and I guess it's not all negatives for people there. Um, what are, are things that you see as positives about Iraqi Kurdistan or positive signs for the future?
2: Yeah, I think the people here always inspire me. This year, this week, sorry, and there's been um, mass student protests in Silver Money, the city I live in, um, protesting against the government, which hasn't been paying the students' allowances since 2014. And um, it, that's what sparked it. But the students are saying that's not all that the issue, that's not the only issue. The issue is also um, the education system and the lack of opportunities for them once they finish study. And um, we went out yesterday to um, one of the protests on the street, on the main street of Suleimani, and there were hundreds of students there uh, from all the different universities, and they were being met by the security forces who were using rubber bullets, live ammunition, shooting in the air, um, lots of tear gas, and water trucks to push back the students and try and disperse them, and they were still there. Um, refusing to move and um, calling for their rights and then coming out the next day as well, refusing to be silenced and not afraid of these threats. There's one of my friends was telling me about a video they saw of two of the students sitting at the front of the protest line, which had started completely as a peaceful protest marching from the university to the center of town. Then they were met by security forces at one of the political buildings And um, these two students were sitting on the ground, legs crossed, just sitting in front of the advancing security forces, and the water truck was spraying water all over them. And they were just continuing to sit there, refusing to move. There was um, the smoke from tear gas all around as well. And um, in our work, we meet lots of people like that who are standing up to this oppressive regime as well as to the bombings and refusing to give up or move we met many families on the border regions who are losing their livelihood from the bombings have lost family members from the bombings um, and now with the new turkish bases being built in the area are uh, continually um, having their movements monitored and unable to move freely because the Turkish soldiers are setting up checkpoints and not letting them through, and they're still refusing to leave. They say, this is our land, we've lived here for generations, and um, we're going to stay here and resist but by refusing to give in and be displaced.
0: All right, thanks very much, Beck. If any of our listeners are interested in finding out more, how can they do that?
2: Um, we have a website, cptik.org, and it's got all our reports and articles on that. We also um, give regular updates through our Facebook page, um, Christian Peacemaker Teams, Iraqi Kurdistan. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well.
0: All right. Thanks, Becky.
2: Thanks.
1: Let me in my God, how We're just a young, I'd shake no beer, no honey food. It's not shake, you can
0: that is Hani, you just heard there, one of the biggest Kurdish rock bands, and that song there a bit of a protest song called Democracy Um, we have been talking about Iraqi Kurdistan with Rebecca Dowling, and it's not the only region of Kurdistan, of course there's a long um, struggle from within Turkey by Kurds for independence struggle in different ways um, in Iran, there's plenty of Kurds and many who have come to Australia as asylum seekers, which is another political issue. Um, but, of course, one of the most prominent uh, struggles of Kurdish people in recent years has been in Syria, where there was the Syrian civil war and then there was Islamic State. And in the middle of all this, the people of northern Syria, who are mostly Kurds, tried to set up... Uh, a kind of direct democratic society that would be ecologically sustainable and have a real focus on gender equality. Uh, it's an incredibly in- interesting story and inspiring and plenty of people around the world have tried to show solidarity in different ways. Um, in Australia, there has been groups doing that and there's a new one as well called Northeast Syrian Solidarity and I spoke with Fionn Skiotis, from the group about what's the latest in North Syria and how can we show support? Could you start off by introducing yourself?
4: Yeah, sure, my name's Fionn Curtis. I live in Melbourne. I've been involved for a few years with a solidarity group called Australians for Kurdistan. And uh, recently I've set up a new group, or myself and some friends uh, have set up a new group called North and East Syria Solidarity, or NES. Um, with the aim of uh, providing aid and support where we can to the people of North and East Syria. So, North and East Syria
0: was in the news a few years ago. Um, People may remember it then being referred to as Rojava. Um, When, during Syrian civil war, but also due to some of the, the ways they were setting up society there, can you give us a bit of background around North and East Syria?
4: Yeah, sure. So, in the north and east areas of Syria, there's a Kurdish majority of the population. Uh, It's also a very diverse population. Um, In 2012, about the middle of 2012, the Assad regime withdrew its forces from that area in a largely peaceful way. Um, And the Kurds who had been organizing for many years prior to that uh, organizing resistance, they took that opportunity and began to organize themselves Um, along autonomous uh, lines. They established communes, uh, uh, working cooperatives and other systems, councils and so on which would allow them to manage their own affairs in a way that's um, quite decentralized, very democratic. Um, They also have very strong uh, principles of pluralism or multiculturalism. So all peoples or faiths, ethnicities and so on in the region are respected. Uh, They're also extremely strong on women's rights and gender equality. And uh, the uh, fourth leg to their their system of beliefs is uh, a strong support for uh, environmentalism or ecology. Uh, And since that time they've been able to to do a great deal, um, despite very significant challenges. Probably the most significant was the invasion of the region in 2014 by Islamic State uh, which was catastrophic. Um, They succeeded in occupying most of the region and it wasn't until the Kurds and their allies stopped the invasion at Kobani uh, towards the end of 2014 that the tide was turned and then the the Kurds and others uh, supporting them with a bit of help from the international community, not mainly in the uh, form of air support uh, they managed to beat back Islamic State um, until their territorial defeat in 2019. So that was really quite a significant achievement. Uh, good for the Kurds in that region, but good for the world as a whole. Um, and uh, and that's something that the north and east Syrian region has never really been properly thanked for or, or taken into account. Um, it's largely just been taken for granted, I think. Um, so they've They've organized themselves in very interesting ways. Um, They've achieved a lot, as I said. Um, They've looked after huge numbers of, you know, hundreds of thousands of displaced people. They're now caring for, guarding and caring for a very large number of Islamic State prisoners and their families. Um, And they've, uh, you know, run and organized their society in a very vibrant way, very interesting way. Um, Quite a radical approach to organizing their uh, political system and social system, their economy. Uh, And they've done that against uh, many, many challenges, including invasion by Turkey and its proxies. Um, One of the regions of north and east Syria, called Afrin, was invaded and occupied in 2018, uh, at the beginning of 2018. And uh, late 2019, Turkey invaded again, this time along quite quite a broad front, and occupied quite a significant zone coming in from the border, about 20 to 30 k's. Um, that was eventually stopped through international negotiations and other things. Um, but once again, today Turkey is threatening to invade even further. Um, that's that's in the air. It hasn't done it, but um, that is a constant threat. And um, in addition to that, uh, Turkey does. Uh, attack on a smaller scale on a daily basis in, in quite a few areas and does other things to undermine the region. Just one example, uh, the region is going through a significant drought at the moment and Turkey um, controls the water of the Euphrates and other rivers I think um, up, upstream and it is chosen to use that as a kind of weapon against the people of rojula by reducing the water flow significantly, so water has become a really critical issue for the people there.
3: Kere Kurdistan'ıma le 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 le, le. çağı dünyayı bu kurbanım lili dayı The Elder Ru Nahima, the Purban,
0: That is Kedah Salih there with the song Ez Shavani Azadi Meh, which does translate as I am a freedom fighter. And Kedah is from Rojava, North Syria. We have been speaking with Fionn Skiotis from Northeast Syrian Solidarity about uh, what's happening there in North Syria with Kurdish people and others. And let's go back to hearing from Fionn. They certainly have the challenges there and, um, like any oppressed group, uh, deserve our support. But there are interesting things, as you've said, about how they structure their society. Can you just elaborate a bit more on that, on how
4: they try to live democratically? Yeah, look, from what I understand, there's a a system of smaller bodies that federate up to larger bodies that go across the nine regions that make up Rojava and uh, ultimately uh, cover Rojava as a whole. So they start at the bottom level with um, what are called communes. Um, They can be, or they are local areas in towns. They can be as small as 150 people or up to, I think, a thousand. I've seen that figure. Um, So so they're generally local in nature, a small area in a town or a larger area in um, in the rural areas uh, or they can be workplace based. Uh, and these these elect representatives up to um, councils uh, and there are a whole range of these um, which in turn elect delegates up to high level councils uh, and so on. Um, you have uh, 10 councils covering broadly what we would consider sort of ministerial areas of responsibility, health and so on um, in each of the regions and uh, as I said I think there are nine regions and then uh, there are also the same ten areas covered at the uh, across all of north and east Syria or Rojava. Um, So it's it means, I mean not every single person is involved in every single decision obviously but it is a system for control from the bottom up so delegates are sent to represent the views of those who are sending them. They can be recalled at any time. And they also have a very, very well established system now of gender equality, so that every organization, every committee, every council has, uh, uses what's called the co-chair system, so um, it has to be two chairs, one female, one male, which effectively means that women are uh, you know, they're at the forefront, running, helping to run every body in, in north and east Syria. There are also women-only bodies um, in many areas as well. So it's a form of uh, I guess you call it decentralized democracy uh, and direct democracy. There's direct control. Um, it's different to our parliamentary system where we put a vote in a box once every three or four years and, um, and, and to a large degree between those events we don't control what our politicians do um, with the power that we supposedly give them, in Rojava it's very different. There is very direct control and very direct participation. You know, anecdotally I've heard, for example, that uh, people say, oh, there's just so many meetings going on all the time in Rojava. And of course that's, you know, perhaps one of the burdens of direct democracy. You are expected to step up, take part in meetings, uh, discuss things and exercise that control that you have.
0: Well, um, there's great things going on there, as you said, and, but also a, a lot of threats to it from uh, Turkey and other hostile uh, neighbours. So you've mentioned that you've just started a new group, in Solidarity. Can you tell us about
4: that? Yeah, so we've just started a new group called North and East Syria Solidarity, so N-E-S-S-S. Um We'll be launching our website and, and starting to get active soon. Our aim is to, you know, show solidarity with the people and the institutions of North and East Syria. We think that's all worthwhile, we think it offers a, what's been called a beacon of hope in that Middle Eastern region and in fact to the world. Um, it's a different way of doing things based on equality, based on participation in uh, running their own affairs, based on gender equality, as I said, care for the environment. So there's a whole lot of really good things that are happening there. And unfortunately, they're just facing these very significant challenges um, on many fronts. You know, they have Turkey has invaded some areas, it's threatening to invade again. They have the Assad regime on the other side. Relations are not quite that bad, but um, they're they're trying to talk to each other, but it's not an easy discussion. The Assad regime isn't into direct democracy or anything like that. Um, Then they have, uh, you know, the KRG government in Iraq, which is very different to the approach taken in Rojava that sometimes they blockade the border um, so they can be quite isolated at times. Um, Then you have, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, that's going on at the moment. As I said, there's a severe drought and Turkey is using water resources to, you know, as a weapon against the people of Rojava. Uh, They have to care for and guard the uh, very large number of Islamic State prisoners, which the world, countries around the world, will not uh, repatriate, would be great if they did. Um, so I think there are something like sixty or seventy thousand prisoners, and and their families as well. So it's a really big burden on a under-resourced um, uh, region. Uh, then have very large numbers of displaced people, internally displaced, um, including from the Afrin region, which was occupied by Turkey and its proxies. So, you know, they're really behind the eight ball, as they say, um, and they could really do with people's help uh, and support and advocacy. Um, so what we seek to do here in Australia is, is to provide some support. So we're looking to ship, for example, some a container of medical equipment and medical supplies as soon as we can organise that. We're also seeking just to raise awareness about North and East Syria here in Australia. Many people don't know of it. They don't know what they're about. I don't know what the issues are so we're, we'll try and get the word out about that. We'll try and do what we can to advocate for north and east Syria here in Australia. Um, the government generally isn't very interested in what's going on there um, and for many people it's seen as being a long way away, which it is, but uh, we think there is still a lot of relevance um, yeah. and, and it's good for people to know about what's going on there and to you know act in support. So we'll try and do what we can here with uh, various, um, you know, political parties and systems, uh, civil society and so on, to en- en- enlist and encourage support for North and East Syria. And we're working in close contact with our um, the Kurdish community here, our friends in that community. Uh, and we hope to give that a- the best shot we can.
0: OK. Thanks very much, Fionn. No problem. Yeah.
4: Thanks for the opportunity.
0: That is Fionn Skiotis there talking about northeast Syria, um, also known as Rojava, one of the parts of Kurdistan, of course, that are not recognized as a united nation, but that group there, really interesting ways of um, organizing society and trying to live in a just way, and now actually trying to break out of just Kurdish ethnic nationalism, hence the fact that it is no longer being called a Rajava, a Kurdish word, that they've gone for northeast Syria as a way of including other ethnic groups in the area, which uh, we certainly need. There's enough ethnic nationalism in the world already, um, and so yet another thing that we can be inspired by from the Kurds. Of course, on this show, we also spoke to uh, Rebecca Dowling about what's happening in Iraqi Kurdistan, where... Um, there's been some really inspiring uh, struggles from journalists and activists fighting for transparency and democracy in that country paying the price but um, staying true to their struggles so if you do want to hear more about um, what CPT are up to in Iraqi Kurdistan cptik.org is the website and Northeast Syrian Solidarity. I think he's just starting up as a group, but they will have a uh, presence soon, I'm sure. And of course, all humans deserve our solidarity, um, any across any borders. But Kurds, in particular, as we've heard, they face their own unique challenges um, and are trying to struggle in a way that is very interesting and inspiring. And so. Um, it's very hard to do as well with hostile neighbours. It's very hard to get good democracy working in Australia, let alone in places where you're essentially in a war zone. And um, people, some of you know these activists, uh, really have targets on their heads. One of the things that we haven't mentioned is that there is a kind of... Um, father figure of Kurdistan, a, a figure of great political influence. His nickname is Apo, which means uncle, um, but his name is Abdullah Öcalan, and he has been in prison in Turkey for almost a quarter of a century. And but from there, he's continued to write political theory um, about. A democracy about a non-Western way of thinking about democracy, about ecology, uh, about socialism and anarchism, and he is a lot of the inspiration for some of those experiments in democracy that are happening in North Syria. So, uh, Ojalan you can read his writings, translations of his writings, um, very interesting and a great contribution to global political thought as well from Behind Prison Walls. Um, and so as well as campaigns of solidarity with Kurdish people there is a global campaign to free Ojalan and we will go out with this song dedicated to Ojalan from Lee Brickley. It's an interesting thing as well that I haven't mentioned that there is a lot of music from around the world made in solidarity with Kurds and with people of North Syria in particular there's a A punk label, I think, called Punks for Rojava, which has put out a bunch of records, especially in the hardcore cross-punk kind of style, and electronic artists as well, and then a lot of protest folk singers um, like Lee Brickley here who are inspired by what's going on there. So that's all for us on The Paradigm Shift for another week. I'll see you next week.
5: took up arms in 84 to fight the turkish state and protect the kurdish people from another deadly fate some may call him a terrorist but you know it's not that way and when politicians didn't care against the state for their years of persecution and their policies of hate on a mission for the freedom of the people of his land he's the life and blood and heart and soul of all of Kurdistan he liberated women helped them shed religion's chains built a path for every person from the cradle to the grave an intellect and passion like the world has rarely seen overturned if they'd only take another look i think that they could